Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. I'm one of the ruling elders here. If you don't know me, uh, I'm a first service guy, and that sometimes happens. So, um, yeah, introduce yourself if you don't know me uh, after. It'd be great. Uh, I got a text from Dan on Monday. They, the Nucha basketball team, the Homeschool Basketball Association, have regionals out in Indianapolis, so he wanted to see his, his son play, and uh, I think they played late last night, and um, I don't know how they did, but I imagine they did well. Um, so he asked if I'd be willing to do it, and I said, yes, so you're stuck with me today. Yay! Um, <clears throat> we've been looking at God's blueprint for the church. Church is one of those weird things. If you've been to churches... Sometimes things seem normal, sometimes they seem odd, sometimes you don't know what you don't know, and you, you know, it's kind of weird. Uh, today we're going to see that the Apostle Paul's telling Timothy uh, that he, why he's writing this letter, and it is this idea of how to behave yourself or conduct yourself in the household of God. And um, the, the nearest thing I can think of this is, um, oh, and he also talks about this as uh, this mystery of godliness, that is this idea of um, we have a particular uh, revelation that we know from God that could be mysterious from the outside. And so we, we want to make sure that um, the churches are um, behaving and conducting themselves according to this mystery that has been revealed to us. So the nearest thing I could think of as an illustration of, of the uncomfortableness is golf. When I was in, uh, uh, I didn't know how to golf. I, I was uh, graduating from college, or, or almost getting out of college, I should say. I didn't graduate, but I was getting out of college. And uh, I was involved with Young Life as a volunteer. And the regional director, Larry Anderson, for Southern California region, um, was trying to get me to consider going on staff with Young Life. And so he asked if I would be interested in going on this golf outing. It was a three-day golf outing with just staff members, uh, of the Southern California region and uh, committee members. In other words, um, people who are very influential with lots of money uh, in uh, Southern California and all the staff people. And I knew <clears throat> that would be interesting and I should probably make a good appearance. Uh, I said yes, and I didn't have golf clubs, so I borrowed some. I started practicing at a um, driving range so I wouldn't embarrass myself too much. And um, the day before I'm going to leave, Larry had sent out a reminder to everyone that you have to have spikes. It's required for you to have spikes to golf at this golf club, uh, St. Louis Ray Downs, and right outside of San Diego. And I was like, oh, no, I don't, now I have to find spikes. Who's going to have So I had, it took me a while, but I tracked down some spikes to borrow. So I thought, now at least I'm, I'm going to be fine. 
So I show up that e the Thursday, it was like a, not a Thursday, but it was like a three-day thing, and the idea was you're going to play early in the morning, and that's your score. Then they would take by scores and by handicaps, which I didn't know what a handicap was either because I didn't know golf. We are going to have a scramble. I didn't know what a scramble was, but I figured out, I figured it out. And then we'd, at the, after the scramble, then the, the idea was is that you're going to try to do another 18 holes after that. So the idea was to play three 18-round uh, in one day, and we're going to do that three days in a row. Yeah, and I'd never played golf before. So I show up the evening before, I meet the people I'm rooming with and uh, get ready to go and I head down to the clubhouse. We're gonna have a very early breakfast uh, with a little bit of worship. Larry Anderson was gonna share a few things and we're gonna go. And I walked in and noticed that I had nice shorts on so I was good, I had my spikes with me and I was wearing a t-shirt. And everyone is wearing collared shirts and Larry, after his talk, he makes a beeline for me, and he goes, <clears throat> you don't have to happen to have a collared shirt with you. And I had to respond honestly. I don't own a collared shirt. Um, I, had, uh, I had about a 21-inch neck at the time. I was pretty big physically. Um, all, everything I owned was like sweats, shorts, and T-shirts in college. Uh, and... Um, and so he said, come with me. And he took me to the to clubhouse and he bought the largest golf shirt they had and it was still very tight. But at least I had a collar um, and I was going to have to wear that for three days in a row. Uh, but anyway, so uh, we began again golfing. Um, and, the, and it's the things that I didn't know, right? So I'd be standing... I'd be standing there, someone's putting and my shadow's going between the ball, their ball and the cup evidently they're not supposed to do that they're looking at me like glaring daggers at me I'm like oh what am I supposed to like I had no idea what I was doing it was it was weird there's a thing about being in golf like I can know about golf but until you're actually playing golf you you don't know what's going on it's a mystery you it has to be revealed to you through playing and and it's similar with the church like, if you can recall the very first time, like, I grew up in the church, but I know many people who come to faith later in life, and the first time they come to church, it's weird. Why do they do these things? What's, what's going on? Who are they? You know, there's, you know, I introduced myself as, I'm a ruling elder, uh, Rania, and the people are like, what does that mean? You're an old guy. I get it, right? You think, why do they, and then Pastor Spencer comes up, and they go, why do they call him pastor and me the old guy? I guess it is because I'm old. I don't know. So there, there's all these, these weird things about church. So we find Paul is writing so that we might know how to behave and conduct ourselves um, based upon this mystery of godliness that we'll go over. So I'm going to read our text. We'll pray and get started in it. Here's our text today. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. 14 through 16. 992 in the Red Bible. All right, hear now the word of the Lord. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, 
vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words that Paul wrote to Timothy, not just for him and the church in Ephesus, Lord, but for us as well. I pray, God, that as we read, as we uh, hear your word, um, you would help us to understand, and more than that, Lord, that we would believe, that we would uh, understand that how, uh, the greatness of the mystery of godliness that we have, which is Christ, and um, pray this to his glory, amen. Going back to 14 and 15, I hope to come to you, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household for, of God. So first we understand that, God, that Paul is identifying the church, this, this ecclesia, this assembly of his people, the church in two different ways. One is that this church is the household of God. The other is that he is, it is the, uh, a pillar and um, buttress of the truth. Okay, So let's start with the household of God. How one ought to behave in the household of God. So first of all, this, this idea of household, the Greek word is oikos. Oikos is, of course, where we get the English word yogurt. I'm, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Every time I talk about oikos, people go, oh, like the yogurt. Um, oikos means, it, it, the literal translation would be household. But we also get this other word from it um, in English, which is economy. Economy. So if you think back in the old days, um, like right now, when I, we think of economy, we think of that stuff as happening outside of our household. We typically think of that, you know, businesses and corporations, and you go out and you do your job, and you know, whatever, presidents take credit for it, and that's not really true. Jason, am I right? See, it's not really true. But there's this economy. Well, it, it originally, in the old days, economy was what happened within households. And, and it had to do with the divisions of labor. You know, if I had a household, I had property, and I had a, you know, it's not just my wife and kids and a dog. It's, it's, um, it's, I have a particular job, my wife has a particular role in that, my, my kids will be put to work, I might have servants that are also working. It's this division of labor that it's talking about. Also, you'll notice it says one, how one ought to behave in the household of God. That word to hear for behave can be, you know, some translations will say conduct oneself. And it's really a tricky thing because it's dealing with both ideas. Right? If I talked about behavior in the household of God, you'd probably think like in our house, right? my household, my kids aren't supposed to put their muddy feet on the furniture. Right? They take off their shoes in the mudroom, they come up, and right? then they can put their feet up on the, on the ottoman, but don't put it on the couch. I don't want to smell your stinky feet when I lay down there or something. Um, they, have, they have to say please and thank you. You can't just say, give me this, and you're not going to get it. Trust me, you're not going to get it. Um, you have to say, please, you have to be kind to your brothers. If you can't get along with your brothers or sisters, you can't get along with your friends. And so you don't get to see your friends unless you can play nicely with your siblings, right? So there's all these rules or ways in which we behave ourselves within our household. And Paul is going to write about some of that, like how we ought to behave within the household of God. So already, I, I, I know I preached um, oh, oh, not that long ago, 
And uh, we t- it talked about uh, desiring for men to pray, you know, lifting holy hands without quarreling or uh, anger, right? Because, why? Because men were having a problem quarreling with one another and being angry with one another, and you shouldn't behave that way. So it's like, it's here is the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying you, no, knock it off. Don't do that. It's not how you behave in the household of God. Another thing, though, that's going on is uh, it has to do with the economy part, how you're to conduct yourself. How do we conduct ourselves as a church? And we saw that with, with the Apostle Paul saying, you're supposed to, Timothy, you're supposed to appoint elders. Here's the qualification for elders. This is what elders are supposed to do. You're supposed to appoint deacons. Here are what deacons are supposed to do. This is what deacons are like. Even check out their, their women, and they're supposed to be doing, they're supposed to live like this. Right, so you have this idea of behavior, and also how the uh, the church is conducting itself. So he wants them to know these things. Um, this is how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God. But the second thing he says too is that the church is also, he says, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Pillar seems pretty easy to visualize if you've seen ancient Greek or Roman buildings with pillars, right, columns. They hold the weight of things. They, they, so you, you, if it's a big structure, there'll be pillars within the, the building itself um, or, you know, outside. It's not just decoration that they have those columns up. It's actually holding up the front part of the roof. It's supporting its weight. Um, buttress is something a little different. Some translations might say ground of truth. And the idea of a buttress was that it's the thing that's helping to, to keep the building on its foundation, right? It's attached to its foundation. It's, it's going to stay there. If there's an earthquake, if there's big winds or something, it's not going to come off. It's going to stay there, and that's what the buttress or ground was supposed to do. And so this is the church. It's a household it has functions, we're part of it, we're, we're God's children, we're his sons and daughters, and he's, he's made elders and deacons for the church, and we're supposed to behave particular ways, but also we're a ground, or a pillar and buttress of the truth. I want you to note that it, it doesn't say that the church is the truth. It doesn't say that the elders are the truth. We're a support and uh, a pillar and buttresses keeping the church in the truth. God's word is the truth. God's word written, God's word come flesh, Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's the truth. And the church exists as a, a, something to support and keep this household in that truth. What does this mean? It means one is we have a responsibility to make sure that that's happening. Right? I, if, we, if, if I come up here and I kind of give off some weird doctrine and, you know, the Spirit is saying to me that we should all, you know, do something weird. I don't know. Make something up. I, you know, we should all um, dance in circles uh, before we say amen, after we pray. 
Well, that's, well, that sounds dumb. Um, but it could be more subtle than that. Uh, I had a conversation with a priest about uh, the assumption of Mary, a doctrine that Mary was sinless, that um, she never sinned, and that uh, not only was she immaculately conceived, by the way, immaculate conception that the Catholic Church believes is not that Jesus was immaculately conceived, it's that Mary was immaculately conceived, so she didn't have original sin, and so Jesus didn't have original sin. And because she didn't have original sin, she didn't sin. And because she didn't sin, she didn't die. She was assumed body and soul into heaven. You know where they got that from? Not the Bible. Not the Bible. And so when I was talking to this priest, she, he basically was saying that the church, the church is what has the truth. And because the church is what the Bible came from, their traditions and what they interpret of the Bible is the truth, right? And that totally contradicts what Paul is saying to Timothy. The church is not the truth. God's word is the truth. And we can't go off. We can't just make stuff up. We can't just decide things that are not buttressing and supporting the truth that we have in Scripture. Does that, does that make sense? One of the things I like about our Presbyterian system is that I can say something, um, preach something, and um, people will feel free to disagree with me. I love it. But they'll, you know, send me an email or they'll, you know, stop me before we get out here and we'll have to talk about it. You know why? Because they're looking in Scripture and then we're having a conversation about what? What is it that God's word is saying? It's about God's word, right? And I can't imagine, right, if I was going to have a cult, what I would probably do is not let you guys read your Bible for yourself. I would keep you in ignorance and through the rituals of our church, just say you're fine. As long as you give me 10% of your money. That sounds familiar, actually, doesn't it? Well, it's a, it's a lie. You know what another lie is? I know that sounds like I'm talking about the other people. Let me talk about us. We belong to a household of God, which means um, we're family. That there are things that we ought to conduct ourselves in certain ways and, and behave in certain ways towards one another. I don't know, about 50 years ago or 40 years ago, um, there was this decision by some people to think, hey, you know what we should do? Let's ignore 1 Timothy and let's orient our church based upon a consumerism. And what we'll do is we'll attract more people by um, appealing to their own interests. We'll make it seeker-sensitive. What we'll do is we will, since you're consumers, we're going to treat you as consumers and that you're going to come to church to consume religious goods and services. In other words, you're going to come to church to be entertained by our music, you're going to hear some good advice, and then you can just go your merry way. Again, as long as you're giving 10%, I'm fine. I'm just kidding. They don't, that's not very seeker sensitive. It's just give what you can that's a lie. That's 
not the way God intended his church to be. You're part of the God's household, and there's expectations for you to participate in what it means to be his household. And there's a way that we're supposed to conduct ourselves, and there's a way that we're supposed to do things. We can't just make it up. And we can't just let you sit there and pretend that what you are is just a consumer of religious goods and services. What you are are brothers and sisters in Christ. Or if you're not a brother and sister in Christ yet, we sure are praying that you become one. That means that our lives are connected in such a way that it matters whether you're here or not. That you're here to participate in the worship of of the service, to commune with Christ and each other. That means when you have a disagreement, when you have something against one of your, or again, brothers and sisters in Christ, you make sure that you're reconciled. That you go to them, like Jesus said, and tell them that you've sinned against them. That there's reconciliation that happens. Why? Because this isn't just some store that you get to consume from. It's the church, the church of the living God, the household of God, and it's the pillar and ground of truth. Now, or buttress of truth. Now, you have this part where, this is the, the fun part. Now he's gonna tell us about what we confess as the church. What we confess as the church, this mystery of godliness. Look at verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, okay? So first, remember, Timothy is in Ephesus. Paul is writing to Timothy about the church in Ephesus. Paul has also written a letter to the Ephesian church, right? So first, I want to talk about one of the things that commentators uh, wrote that I thought was kind of neat. If you knew the the, uh, religion of the Ephesians, uh, it was primarily uh, revolving around the god Artemis. And they'd have this saying where they would say, great is the god Artemis. And so this commentator made the point, perhaps what Paul's doing is uh, riffing off of that, um, making a point. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, of our true godliness. Artemis is a false god. Artemis is nothing. But great indeed is what we confess, this mystery of godliness. What is the mystery? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 3. If you you have your Bibles, what I'd I'd love for you to do is just kind of put your thumb there on 1 Timothy and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Remember, Timothy is in Ephesus, Timothy is pastoring in Ephesus, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, chapter 3, verses 4 through 11, 4 through 11. Paul writes, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been re- now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is, drum roll please, I'm just kidding. This mystery is, 
that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, a few weird things here. Ready? The big mystery that had been hidden for ages is this, that the kingdoms of the world would belong to Jesus. That the Gentiles, the nations, those who were not physical descendants of Abraham would be brought in to be God's people too, into one body. This is the mystery that's being revealed. This is the problem in Ephesus, is you're having all these divisions within the church between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, between different classes, the rich and the poor. I think Dan talked about that with the braiding of hair and, and the gold and stuff. There should be no divisions. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of all. Of all nations. Not just one. Okay? So... Let me, let me go a little deeper. Um, yes, let me go a little deeper. I know. You're laughing at me. If you, if you looked at, uh, in Genesis, you have um, the Tower of Babel, right? In Genesis chapter 10, there's a table of nations, like the descendants of Noah and where they go to become these separate nations, and so when, the, when the, the Bible talks about the nations, they're often talking about those table of nations, that all the nations of the world came from that table of nations. And what you find is, is that in Genesis chapter uh, 11, the Tower of Babel is when they all split. Instead of doing what God told them they just, and spread throughout the world, uh, they all gathered together on the plain of Shinar, built this this tower to make a name for themselves, God confuses their language so they can go over, uh, all over the world, do what God wanted them to in the first place. But you see in, in the book of Deuteronomy, you see this um, telling of the fact that these nations uh, God had assigned or allotted to uh, different heavenly beings. There, there are different heavenly beings, uh, Elohim, you is what the Bible uses in Hebrew, who would be watching over these nations, um, and, they, and they do a horrible job. Uh, God in chapter 12 of Genesis picks Abraham and says, out of you, right, I'm going to bless you and make your name great, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. But he also says, um, through you, through your descendants, I'll, I'll bless the world. In other words, the nations are given over, but with a promise that in the future, God would reclaim them. 
If you look at Psalm 82, God, God judges the, those, uh, those Elohim who have done a bad job. They've, they've rebelled against God. They've helped their, their people go into rebellion. They've even accepted worship um, from, from the people. The end of it says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. This is part of the mystery. God has reclaimed all the nations in Christ. We'll see this through the confession. So let's, let's look at the confession here. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. Here we go. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's go over each of those pieces. First it says he was manifest in the flesh. Who was manifest in the flesh? Christ. Jesus was. Jesus is the mystery. He's the one that's bringing all people together. Jesus became flesh. It's interesting, in the early church, the, the big heresies at first were not about Christ's divinity. That seemed to be perfectly acceptable by people who had heard about Jesus. His miracles, his virgin birth, his being raised to the right hand of the Father. They didn't have a problem with his divinity. They had a problem with, how, well, how can he also be human? It had to be his flesh. But he had to be flesh. Why did he have to be flesh? Well, there's a few reasons. The first is this, when sin first entered the world um, by Adam and Eve and through their sin, um, God made a promise. After explaining the curses, telling them what's going to happen, he makes a promise. And his promise is this, the serpent who brought in that temptation, that serpent, a seed of the woman will crush its head. The seed of woman, singular, will crush his head. In other words, for Satan and evil to be conquered, it had to come from a human being. God had to become flesh, born of a woman. Second, according to the way things worked, there was a correlation between the nations and their rulers and the heavenly powers the rulers and authorities in heavens. And God had established a king, David, whose kingdom would never end. There had to be a king from the line of David to come and rule not just Israel, but all the nations. So Jesus was born, not just a descendant of Abraham, but a descendant of Judah, a descendant of David, so as people call out to him, son of David, this is a royal title. Jesus is the king, who would be the king not just of Israel, but the king of all the nations. Third, third is it was necessary for the covenant with Israel to be fulfilled so that it could be extended in ways which would make it possible for the rest of everyone else to be able to come in. So he had to be born under the law. So Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. It was necessary for Jesus to be born as a human being to fulfill all these things, to take on uh, our sin, to crush the head of the serpent, to be the eternal king, and to redeem those who were born under the law. Then it goes on and says, vindicated by the spirit. He was manifested in the spirit. He was vindicated by the spirit. Or manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit. Vindication, this is my, my wife after the first service says, you should probably define vindication. That's a good idea. Someone who's vindicated is someone who's been um, pronounced not guilty or justified or right, right? So, um, you know, I'm... I'm having an argument with Scott Jansen over some, you know, finer point of theology and, you know, we call it Pastor Dan and Dan agrees with me and then I'm vindicated, right? No. <laughs> or whatever it might be. You know, you, you get a, um, it's, it's this idea of an announcement or a proclamation of being in the right, of being justified or not guilty, um, those types of things. And you go, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, we've been vindicated by Jesus. I, I, I'm justified by him. Now, you go, okay, our proclamation, the, the confession of the church, of the household of God, of the, the ground and the pillar and buttress of the truth is that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. And you go, I don't remember when that happened. When was that? Well, this is the resurrection. The resurrection. Listen to uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 4, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was, the, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The spirit vindicated Christ by raising him from the dead. Here's why this is such good news to us. We are sinners. And God had said that we deserve death. In fact, eternal separation from him because of our sin. Jesus came, God became flesh to take on our sin on the cross on our behalf. He needed to live a sinless life so he would be the spotless lamb of God in order for this to work. So we had to have a God who has become a human being who is sinless die on our behalf. Well, how do you know it worked? How do we know that it worked? How do we know that Christ's sacrifice offered to God worked? Well, he was vindicated by the Holy Spirit, by him rising from the dead. If it didn't work, he'd still be in the grave. And if he was still in the grave, we'd all be hopeless. We'd be without hope. But Christ was vindicated. What he did worked. He became flesh. 
He lived a sinless life, perfect obedience to the Father for our sake and died for our sake so that his righteousness is ours and our guilt was his. And it worked. How great is the mystery of godliness. Amen? Not only was he manifest in the flesh and vindicated by his spirit, he was seen by angels. Now, this is the weird one, because, I mean, frankly, when I read this and I read through it, I manifest cool, vindicated cool, proclaimed among nations, yes, believed by the world, yes, taken up by the all that's great. And this weird one is he was seen by angels. It just seems weird, doesn't it? Like, do you care that he was seen by angels? How many of you care that he was seen by angels? The only reason I care that he was seen by angels is because the Bible says I ought to care. And if I'm being completely frank, I never thought of it before, but this was a big deal. Why is it a big deal? Because it shows that his salvation, his redemption, his work, his this mystery of godliness that we proclaim, that we're to conduct ourselves by and order ourselves by, is, has cosmic in, impact. It's not just something that happened in Palestine many years ago. And then we have like these clubs that remember him called the church. No, heaven and earth has been disordered because of sin and God has ordered all of it and it has cosmic implications. Luke chapter 2, 10 through 14 talks about uh, angel, uh, um, you know, and a multitude singing praises when he was born. Matthew 4 talks about angels coming um, and ministering to him after he was tempted by the devil. Matthew 28 talks about the angel rolling back the stone after his resurrection. Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 10, talks about two angels uh, after the, as he sends to heaven and he tells the disciples, why are you looking up there? He's going to come back. He's going to come back. It has cosmic implications. All authority, Jesus told us, after he rose from the dead has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations. All nations. He was seen by angels. It's not just, it's not just when he ascended to heaven, uh, we see that there's this war in heaven. Michael and the angels kick him out, Satan out. They no longer have access to the heavenly realms. Satan no longer can accuse you before the Father. Did you know that? Like everything's different because of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. In the past, the old, in the old days, before this happened, Satan would roam around the earth and he'd go to the heavenly council and before God and accuse people. You know? He'd say, man, you know that Kellen Landis? I'm talking about you, Kellen. Bad kid. You should have seen what he did in seventh grade Bible class the other day. And uh, I'm just teasing, sort of. You know, and, you know, I want, I want to present to you this. You should need to punish him, right? Your law says this, and this is what they did. Come on, God. Stay to your law, right? That's, Satan did that. Now, he's been cleared out. He is raging around now on the earth, looking to devour people. He still tempts us. He still accuses us to each other and to ourselves, Right? 
But now, instead, we have, God, we have Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. So now, when Satan wants to accuse Kellen, he can't. He can't go up there and accuse him. Instead, what happens is Jesus is sitting there saying to his father, Kellen's one of mine. He's covered. He's covered by the blood. And he intercedes for all of us that way. He's proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. I'm going to do those two together. So in this cosmic thing, this cosmic reality of Jesus dying, rising, and ascending into heaven, he's made things clear. The nations are now his kingdom. When Satan tempted Jesus and, G and, he said, and he brought him up to the temple and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and Satan said to Jesus, see all these kingdoms? I'll give them to you if you bow down and worship me. You'll note that Jesus did not say, well, those don't belong to you. You know why? Because they did belong to him. They did belong to Satan. But Jesus loved the world that he gave his own life for the world. And now, he says, after his death and resurrection, all authority has been given to me. Go make disciples of all nations. All nations. Uh, this was foreseen, uh, his, his ascension into heaven, where he sits at the right hand now, was foreseen by Daniel. Let me, let me read um, this also works for taken up in glory. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. So get this, this is not the second coming. This isn't Jesus coming on the clouds here. This is him in the clouds going to the Father. This, he's ascended to heaven, and he's going in the clouds to the Ancient of Days. He was given authority glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Amen? Great is the mystery of our godliness. Great is this gospel. All nations are now been given to Christ, and he's told us as his church to go and make disciples of all the nations, of all the peoples, and it's happening. It's like a, Jesus said, his kingdom would be like a little mustard seed, the smallest in all your garden, but in the end, it would be the biggest, right? And Daniel, another vision Daniel had was this, this rock that tumbles down off of a hill and knocks, topples the kingdoms of the world, and that rock becomes a mountain that encompasses the world. This is what's happening in our day. The gospel is being proclaimed to all the nations, and people are coming to know him. People are coming into faith in him and becoming part of his household. Everywhere, everywhere. Now, I get it, if we watch the news if we're looking at our social media and all sorts of silliness, it feels like 
somehow Jesus lost. Now, our, you know, things in our day kind of go in ebb and flow, and things will get better, and things will get worse. And right? Sometimes we feel like we're living in the worst time possible in the world. I think that's kind of funny. I can't, when would you rather have lived? Where would you, right? The, the, the issue is this. Um, Satan is a defeated foe. The kingdom of God is advancing, and it's going to continue to advance. And there's nothing Satan can do to stop it. And it's growing like mad. Now, in America, I think we've been stumbling as a church. Why are we stumbling as a church? And I'm not just talking about Jacob's Well, I'm talking about the big C. Well, I think sometimes we believe that things are just going south and we give up. I think sometimes we're caught in that consumer mentality that I'm not going to do anything unless I feel like it. Like unless, you know, worship gets better or something or the pastor, pre, you know, get that Ron Young guy out of there, get Dan back or something. I don't know. We need motivation or I don't know what it is. But we're on the victorious side. The great mystery of godliness is a cosmic conquering savior who has done everything needed for us, for our godliness and for the salvation of the world and the nations. And he's given us a task of not only being reconciled one to another, but reconciling all the nations to him. And that's why this mystery that is proclaimed is great indeed. There's all sorts of people who have little mystery cults. Always have. The Masons, I don't know. The God Artemis, I don't know. None of those matter. Even if, even if all the conspiracy theories, the Illuminati, whatever mystery things were true, they might be, I don't know. They mean nothing. They mean nothing compared to Jesus Christ, him crucified, raised, and sitting at the right hand of the Father, who's been taken up in glory and is going to come again. Nothing can stop this kingdom. Nothing, nothing can prevent us from being on this, in this kingdom-winning, glorified thing, unless we want to ignore his word. Unless we want to be caught up in godless myths, unless we want to get caught up in gossip, unless we want to get caught up in divisions over stupid things or divisions over... I'm not saying that there are some important things that we need to discuss and, and work out, but we're family, for crying out loud. We're family. We're not consumers, we're family. Great, indeed, is this confession of godliness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for counting us worthy to be part of your household. Our worth, we confess, is not because of us. It's because of your son, Jesus.
We thank you for your gospel, that your son came in the flesh and was vindicated by the Spirit, that he's been seen by angels, that he's being proclaimed by the, among the nations and believed on in the world and taken up in the glory. God, thank you for allowing us to be part of this. I pray, God, that this would give us hope and confidence, Lord, as we go from here, that we can continue to be disciples and make disciples of all nations. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.